following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Miley Cyrus says that she can love herself better than you can. I can love me better, baby. But does she really understand the term love? The confusion begins when you begin to define love as an emotion or a feeling. You know, love is a feeling you feel when you're going to get a feeling you've never felt before. You know, that kind of thing. Interesting enough, sadly, emotion is a small aspect of love. But the love that our heart craves... And the love that our God gives us is completely different. Understand how the first century understood and comprehended love. You really got to get that. Because in our culture, there's one word. It's love. But in the Greek culture, in the first century, they had four different words that really explained four different aspects of love itself. There was eros, which spoke of romantic physical desire. Then there's phileo, which is brotherly love or the love of friendship. There was storge, which was the love of family, a father to a son or a mother to a daughter or a couple to couple kind of thing. And then there was the one that our Lord and the New Testament talk most about, and that's agape. You know that term, but it is the serving selfless, sacrificial love. The serving, selfless, sacrificial love. Now, write this down. Agape may include and involve emotion. It may involve emotion, but if it's true agape love, it must involve action. Get that down. Agape may involve emotion, but when it's true agape love, true New Testament love, it must involve Action. Action. You say, where do you get that, Chris? And I'm saying, I'm so glad you're so feisty and would challenge me on that. Because when Paul wrote his beautiful treatise on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all 15 characteristics that he uses to describe love are given in verb form. So when you read it, when it says love is kind, it's actually love is kinding. It's when it says love is patient, it's actually love is patienting. It's always an action. It's something that's demonstrated. Agape is best described by what it does. What it does. Agape is love in action. It is serving, selfless, sacrificial action. Are you getting it? That's agape. That's the love that the New Testament actually calls for and commands. Now, you all know the greatest of all commandments, correct? Which is Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, there in your outline. Can you find it there in your outline? Because I don't want you to read it out loud with me. Are you ready? Here we go. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is so important that each one of you today leave here 
with a desire and a commitment to love the Lord and to love one another with a serving, selfless, sacrificial love in action. Why? Because the Lord called love the most important quality. Right? He tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, but now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is, answer, love. But before you start growing guilty, and before you give up, like everything we do in this life prior to heaven, our love is going to be imperfect, and it's going to be sporadic. But, on the other hand, all of you who are Christians, who know Christ, not only, Romans 5.5, do you have His love shed abroad in your heart, that's a statement of fact, you have that if you're in Christ, but also beyond that, the Lord empowers you to love Himself and to love others by His Spirit. He empowers you to love, letting you know that you actually can't love this way, on your own. It needs to be empowered by God Himself. In fact, as you're filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, you will then manifest the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, and the first of that fruit is what? Love to love. You say, well, how do we love with sacrificial behavior? Write it down. God loves through you. God loves through you. You have difficulty loving that spouse. Well, listen, Partake in the divine alternative and let God love through you. You say, I'm having a hard time loving that parent, loving that child. Well, then take the alternative and let God love them through you. That's how it's designed. That's what God intends. In fact, these sacrificial actions are so difficult because we are so incapable, and that's why it must be God. But in, in amazingly, in the New Testament, in 1 John 4.19, we love because He what? First loved us. So He's modeled love for us and empowered us to love. We're able to love because of Christ's love. Not only on the cross where He experienced all of the punishment we deserved in hell for our sin upon Himself. Not only because of His choosing us before the foundation of the world and calling us to become His Christians, not only in giving you abundant life now and eternal life forever, but also Christ basically gives us our ability to love by filling us with His Spirit according to His Word and loving through us with a love that you can never lose. You can never lose it. In fact, Romans 8 says... Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's answer is, no one and nobody and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You are bathed in Christ's love. You are having His love shed abroad in your heart. And your greatest joy, your fulfilling lifestyle, your divine purpose is for you to love the way Christ loved with agape. Serving, selfless, sacrificial Love in action. That's what true biblical love is. We don't see a lot of it normally with even in the context of the church. Now we do see a lot of it here, but it's love in action. And this is why Christ commands you and I to be known for love. When people think of you, they should be thinking loving. When they think of you as a person at work, when they think of you as a person at school, they should be thinking that's a loving person person. 
See, where do you get that from? He says it in John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, why is it that Christians sometimes struggle with this, even though they have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and are empowered to love others in a sacrificial way? Why? Well, because we've all been devastated by the failure of love. We've all had love blow up in our faces. Can I hear an amen to that? In some way, you've been betrayed by a friend, abandoned by a parent, abused by a sibling, crushed by a failed relationship. In some way, you've seen the loss of emotion. You've seen the deterioration of a love relationship. Maybe you went and experienced a divorce yourself or had that happen in your family or someone extended family, and you've watched the walls that were built and the savage attacks and the words of destructive hate. You've seen all of that. Here's the good news. Once you're in Christ, you are soaked in His love. And get this, this is an accurate statement. He has reprogrammed you to love. He has reprogrammed you to display His love. Because Christ's love is so radical, He calls you to show His love, are you ready? In revolutionary ways. This is part of our great witness on this planet. To show His love in revolutionary ways. See, when you're looking at the world... They most often love with if love, right? I love you if you do these things. Sometimes they advance a little bit more and they say, well, I love you because you do these things and so I love you because of that. But Christians, you who are born again, you can love with anyhow love. If somebody does something or doesn't do anything. If somebody opposes you or doesn't oppose you, it doesn't matter because you, in Christ, can love them. What's the word? Anyhow. Anyhow. And Christ's love through you even extends to those who don't like you. Is that person clear in your mind? Even those who hate you. In fact, even those who want to do you harm and may persecute you, In fact, Christ's love through you can extend, are you ready for this? To your enemy. Your enemy. Because our love is actually Christ's love through us, through His Spirit, by His Word, and understand, because it's Christ's love, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, Jesus Christ, are you ready? Loves His enemies. He loved you. And me, when we were his enemy. Correct? Romans chapter 5 verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. As Christ has loved you as his enemy, he is now going to ask you to love your enemies. He's just asking you to do what he did for you. Do you have an enemy? Do you? Who's your enemy? Did you say Chris? Did you? Don't, don't sow the name out loud. This is not good. Jason, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this later. Okay, so understand, don't say their name, but ask the Lord to give you wisdom today as you hear his word. Maybe it's not an enemy, but it's somebody who really dislikes you, somebody you have a hard time getting along with. Because loving your enemies is now where Christ takes us in the Sermon on the Mount. See, why are we talking about this? Because, if you're new with us, we're working our way verse by verse by verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
and we're drawing out whatever's there, and we are now at the end of chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 5, at the very end of the chapter, and we are going to study this passage, verses 43 to 48, and draw out this whole concept of loving your enemies, but I want you to do something unique today. We'll only do it today, we won't do it all the time. But I know you're all comfortable, you're all ready to go, but I want you to stand, you can have your Bible or your outline with you, and I'm going to read through the passage by also highlighting the outline, and then we'll pray together and ask the Lord to really open our hearts, because what Jesus is asking you today is monumental. This is so radical that many of you will have a really hard time trying to put this into practice. Because he's going to ask you to love your what? Enemies. Look at what he says. I'll go through the points and I'll highlight the verses. Number one, and again, stay with me, the perversion of God's love. And that's verse 43. You heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. That's a perversion of the word of God. The Bible doesn't teach hate your enemy. So Christ, number two, preserves God's love in verse 44. But he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who what? Persecute you. This is radical stuff. Even the people who oppose you. So number three, why? Well, the purpose of God's love, verse 45, he says, so that, and he gives you his purpose. And so that your love would prove that you're genuinely in God's family. And that's what he says in verse 45, that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. You show whose family you belong to when you love your enemy. And then, what kind of love is this? Well, this is radical stuff, man. First, a lavish love given to everyone without exception. Everyone. What does he say in verse 45? But for he causes his son, that's the son that we're not seeing much of today, to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his reign how appropriate for today, on the righteous and the what? Listen, the lost and the saved all get the rain and all get the sun. It's a love that's universal. It's basically, even he takes it a step further, secondly, it's unilateral love. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, well, what reward do you have? Don't even the horrifically, horribly hated tax collectors love the same. They love who love them. This is a universal love. When you love the way Christ loves, it's one way, no no matter what comes back. And then thirdly, it's in a surpassing love. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, I mean, come on, what more are you doing than others? I mean, everybody greets their brothers. Don't even the Gentiles, the lost, do the same thing. They greet each other. So your love in Christ does way more than the lost. And it's so incredible. Number four, he wraps it up with a perfect love. That's impossible. And that's verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is what? Perfect. What's he telling you? He's saying only the Lord can pull this off. Only the Lord can make this happen. What he's saying is your sin has got to fall on Christ and be judged there. You believing in Christ by faith, his righteousness covers you and makes you in a perfect standing with him. And that's the only way you're ever going to love anybody like that. He's going to transform you and love through you. So let's pray, shall we? Lord, please, if you would, allow us to truly worship you today. And we know that worship is to offer ourselves. Not just the songs we sing, not the gifts we give, and not just our presence here, but Father, that we 
we give you our heart, soul, mind, strength, all of us offered to you. And we pray that we might learn about you, that we might understand you better and understand your love in such a way that we could actually love those who might oppose us or make life difficult or or, or hate us and even become an enemy. And that we would do so, Father, for your glory and your praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Now you can be seated. I want to ask you to stand again so you're safe. But point number one in your outline, let's follow through in this text now. As he starts with, number one, the perversion of the incredible love of Christ. This is what's happening. In the first century, Jesus is speaking on the north side of the Sea of Galilee to probably a couple thousand people. His disciples are around him. He's preaching the most incredible sermon that's ever been preached by anybody. And it's just absolutely incredible. And right now in this section, he's saying, you've been taught falsely by the oral tradition, the application of today, the rules that you follow. In fact, those rules is what they're trying to follow in order to get saved. They've lost the very fact that The father of the Jews, Abraham, was saved by what? Faith. By God's grace. He was made righteous by faith. And they've lost that over time by trying to keep all the rules and applications that came out of the law. And we call that the oral tradition. And so that's the perversion that he's saying, you have heard it said, the oral tradition taught you all these rules and applications, and now you're trying to get saved by following that. Abraham was made righteous by faith. You're forgetting that. So he says, you've heard it said in the oral tradition, and then he's going to contrast that with verse 44. Look at it. It says, but I say to you, and then he tells them the truth of God's word. So here in verse 43 is the perversion. Now, how is it a perversion? You shall love your neighbor, and you shall what? Hate your enemy. This is a perversion of the Bible. Why? Because there's nowhere in the Old Testament, New Testament, anywhere where you'll read, hate your enemy. It's not there in the Bible. The rabbis made it up, and they added it, and then all of a sudden they began to live by it. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And basically, that is not what's taught in the Old Testament, but to love the Lord and love each other, no matter what. And then, it's not even modeled in the Old Testament. Job would even say, look in your outline, Job 31, have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. He goes on to say that if my enemy is hurting, I'm going to meet his need. I'm going to feed him. David was the same. In Psalm 7, in Psalm 35, others would do evil to David And David would overcome their evil with what? Good. He would do good to them. So it wasn't taught in the Old Testament. It wasn't modeled in the Old Testament. But the oral tradition grew to the point where it said you can factually, definitely, firmly hate your enemy. Hate is to dislike, to abhor, to reject with a deep seated hostility. You're, you're angry, okay? Hate your enemy. And an enemy is one you dislike, disagree, disdain. An enemy might one who slander you, lie about you, attack you, harm you, telling you that you can hate your enemy. The oral tradition was perverting the Bible. 
It was messing with God's word. They're adding the lie. It's not true to hate your enemy. That's a lie in the scripture. Now, why'd they do it? There's a lot of speculation about this. And obviously, culturally, it's really hard to know exactly what was going on in the minds of those people that Jesus is talking to. But you understand that Israel was commanded by God to retake the promised land. Remember that? Okay, in the time of Joshua, and they were to kick everybody out, the Canaanites, and destroy them. You say, boy, that's pretty rough. Wait a minute. The Canaanites were so immoral, they were so corrupt, it was so perverse that they would literally more often offer their babies to be burned alive to their pagan gods. This is a culture that had gotten at the lowest of the low, and God is saying, I want you to, to deal with them, but as they dealt with them, they began, the people of Israel, to develop attitudes about enemies, right? And then in the Old Testament, there are some psalms that are preserved. They're called imprecatory psalms. That where God deals with sin in a very vehement way, and he deals with it in a very personal way, and they would read that, they would remember their history, but instead of listening to the commands of the Old Testament, instead of following the examples of the Old Testament, they began to develop attitudes about enemies, and all of a sudden the rabbis said, well, you can hate your enemy. And everybody felt really good about it. So... They perverted the scripture by adding that phrase, hate your enemy. It's not found in the Bible. But they also perverted the scripture, are you ready for this? By omitting something. Say, what did they omit? I'm so glad you asked. The Old Testament doesn't teach the phrase in verse 43. Look at verse 43. You shall love your neighbor. That's not the phrase of the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches, are you ready for this? You shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. They left as yourself off. See, why did they leave it off? Because they can't imagine that we should love any person as much as they cared for themselves. So they left as yourself out of their teaching and perverted the Bible also by omission. Not just adding the phrase, hate your enemy, but now leaving out as yourself. Now listen, most of the students at your school, students, live by loving themselves. Most of the people you work with at, at work, men and women, live their entire lives focused on loving themselves. They're only interested in their own safety, their own concerns, their own pleasure, their own comfort, their own personal interests. Their self-love is intense. Miley says, I can buy myself flowers. I can write my name in the sand. I can talk to myself for hours. Her self-love is massively intense. And instead of loving her husband, she goes, I'm just going to love myself. That's why she wrote the song. To love your neighbor as yourself is even more intense, though, as yourself. Because do we love ourselves, yes or no? Sure, we take care of ourselves. You got washed today, most of you. Okay, you combed your hair, most of you. Uh, you, you did that. You know, you, you take care of yourself. We're very committed to that, very intense. But that was too much for the rabbis, so they left the phrase, as yourself out, making love convenient and making hating your enemy acceptable. Acceptable. That's right. The oral tradition perverted God's 
perfect word, distorted God's word by addition and omission. So what did Jesus do? Well, he clarifies it. Number two in your outline, he preserves the staggering love of Christ. He preserves it. Verse 44, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. Now, loving and praying are commands that are ongoing. So not just that you love them at Halloween when you go to their door, and not just that you love them at Christmas when you give them a gift, you love them continually, all the time. All the time, relationally. And we're to love them constantly and give ourselves away to them, even to those who give us a hard time. Even those neighbors who, you know, you know dumped your trash can over, or whatever, all right? Even those who persecute us. Now, do you understand what the Lord's telling you? Again, one more time. The Lord Jesus Christ, what he does is he turns his enemies into his friends. Does he not? Actually, it's more severe than that. He turns his enemies into his family. And now he's telling you, I want you to do the same. I want you to show them the love of Christ. And by loving them and graciously serving and being selfless and being sacrificial his love even told through the gospel spoken even to enemies you're to be like the good samaritan you're going to stop it's inconvenient and you're going to help them in every way you can that's what we do that points to jesus christ and our lord is taking it a step further in verse 44 not only says we're to love our enemies but we're to pray for those who what they persecute us they're after us you know what persecution comes comes from government It comes from religious circles. It comes from people who just hate Jesus Christ. They hate the exclusivity of Christ. You know, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one come to the Father but through me, they don't like the fact that God is sovereign in salvation, that he alone provides salvation. They want to work their way to heaven, and they hate him for that. And because they hate him, they hate you. They're going to go after you. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 guarantees all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will be what? Persecuted. There's a hostility today that is going to drive Christ away and all those who follow him in any means possible. And because Christ's love demonstrates his character, because it pleases him, that's what God is asking you to do. Turn your enemies into my friends, my family, as much as possible. What do you do when they oppose you? You pray for them. You pray for them. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? You know, his life is the best commentary on his teaching, correct? So what did his life demonstrate for us? Here he is hanging on the cross. He is actually being mocked by the very sinners he came to save. And he prays, Father, what? Forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Uh, Wonderful Christ follower Stephen, one of the early super deacons, did the same thing. While they're stoning him, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, and then he died. That was demonstrated. The Lord calls you to pray. In fact, the literal rendering of the verb to pray is to act upon yourself to pray. You determine, even if you don't feel like it, you're going to pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. You know what it does? When you pray, it softens your heart, does it not? It keeps your emotions in check. It allows you to abide in God's perfect will, which is to supernaturally agape, which is serving selfless sacrificial actions done for the good of others and the glory of God. Now, why would he do that? Number three in your outline, he tells you the purpose. Here's the purpose 
of the inconceivable love of Christ. Verse 45, he says the very first two terms there is so that. That's a purpose phrase telling you why does he do that? Why is he calling for this? What's the purpose of loving your enemies? Well, one of the great purposes of God's love, not the only, but one of the great ones, is it's a love that proves you're genuinely in God's family. When you love like this, you're showing that you are truly born again. That's what he says in verse 45. Look at it. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, loving your enemies does not make you a child of God. Loving your enemies proves that you are a child of God. doesn't make you a child of God. It proves that you are. So if you're born again, you're going to want to do what Christ wants. So that means you're going to love enemies. When we love enemies, we reflect His character. We please Christ. And loving those who hate you proves that you are truly born again. That's what John 13.35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then 1 John 4.20 is so, so in your face. If someone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has, oh, excuse me, love his brother who he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. If God's love is shed abroad in your heart, it's going to show as you deal with people. Look at verse 45. He says, so that you may be. He's basically saying those who love with agape, especially their enemies, are the ones who themselves demonstrate that they truly belong to Jesus Christ. Truly belong to him. You know, even a person who's never heard of Jesus, even a person who's never even seen a New Testament, would actually suspect that something supernatural or that God himself is at work when you begin to love those who persecute you. That's how dramatic it is. Because those actions, would you agree with this? When you love an enemy, that's uncharacteristic human behavior. Are you with me on this? It's uncharacteristic of human nature. A life of self-giving love gives evidence that you belong to God's family. You're acting like a son of your father or a daughter of your father. But what does this agape love for enemies actually look like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? I'm so glad you asked. He gives us those. First in your outline, he tells you that it is a lavish love given to everyone without exception. Everyone. Saint and unsaint, right? Saved and unsaved. These who are God's children show the same kind of love the Father continually shows. Verse 45, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous, right? So the sun gives its warmth, its light, its, uh, its heat, its growing upon those who are saved and those who love Christ, as well as those who are unsaved and those who are opposed to him. In fact, the rain that produces the crops and waters and gives all that in an agrarian culture, sun and rain are essential, and they're given by God without any merit, without deserving any worth. Theologians call this, you might want to write it down, common grace. God loves those who are unsaved, and God loves those who are saved, though the level of love is a little bit different. There's love nonetheless. He's indiscriminate in his benevolence, and his love in some forms benefits everyone, even those who rebel against him, hate him, and those who deny him. 
He still loves them. Does the rain fall on people who deny Christ? Right? Or even deny his existence. Those, what he says in verse 45, who he made righteous by Christ are good. Not because they're good, but he made them good. And those without Christ are unrighteous and evil, but God still shines his sun. He still sends his rain on both good and evil because God loves both his children and his enemies. No, it's not the same. Listen, I love my wife and I love my neighbor, but it's different, right? I love my family and I love those around me, but it's different and that God is the same in that. But God loves without exception. Now, do you have an exception? He's saying, I love, but I'm not going to love that guy. I love, but I'm not going to love that girl. Now, you're an exception? Well, then take a look at second. It's a shocking unilateral love. When he's talking about loving your enemies, it's a shocking unilateral love resulting in eternal reward. He's talking to Pharisees, and he's really, really nailing them. And you don't feel it, but I'm going to help you feel it, okay? Because if you're a Pharisee right now, you would think of yourself as better than everybody. You're just better, right? You, you keep the law, you're above everybody else and kind of the way you produce your faith and religion, you work harder. And as Christ is preaching this sermon to these people, he stabs them right in their pride. He just jabs them because he says, that even the most despised tax gatherer loves as much as you Pharisees do. In fact, look at what he says in verse 46. Look at it. For if you love those who love you, everybody does that, loves those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now, if you're proud and you're a Pharisee, that is the most insulting words that a self-righteous person can hear. Because you know who tax gatherers were, right? They are self-employed extortionists. They're traitorous. Understand, you know this, I think. Rome hired Jewish tax gatherers. And they said, you got to give us a quota for your region with these number of people. And you have to turn in your money, but you can charge more taxes so that you can earn your own income out of that. You get a percentage. Well, some, very few, would, you know, just do a little bit enough so that they could support themselves. But most tax gatherers would charge way more taxes that you had to pay so they could become wealthy upon the backs of their people and their taxes, which made them the most hated people in Israel. Because these tax gatherers are living in mansions while they're collecting taxes and they're overcharging you. And you would hate them, right? And you know what he says? Jesus says, you Pharisees, you religious people, you're no better than them. They greet and love people, those who love them. You're no different than them. You're no more righteous than they are. And that really doesn't sit well with the leadership. Are you with me? They're not happy with this. And Jesus doesn't care because he wants them to know that agape is not a Geiger counter. You know what a Geiger counter is? When it gets around something radioactive, it kind of buzzes and it reacts. You know, it's giving a reaction. Listen, that's not agape. Agape is a searchlight. You know what a searchlight does? It just blasts you with light. doesn't matter what you do, what you don't do. You're just covered in light. 
correct? It just exposes you. That's what agape is. It just gives. It doesn't expect anything in return. There's no reaction. So how do you love on earth? And how do you love on earth that will make a difference in eternity? Well, Jesus says you can, as you love on earth, the way that I'm telling you will make a difference for eternity because he says there's reward in it. See what he says? There's a reward. What reward do you have? Well, listen. Rewards are eternal blessings. And probably, when you're in heaven, your reward will be a greater capacity to reflect the glory of God. Everybody will be full, but some will have a greater capacity to reflect Christ's glory. And rewards are only given when you love in the Spirit for the glory of God, but when you're in the Spirit, walking according to the Word of God for the glory of God, your love will be one way, unilateral, searchlight. Doesn't matter how they respond, you just love. Thirdly, it's an exceptional, surpassing love. You want to know what this love is like when you love an enemy? It rises above the unregenerate. Look at verse 47. If you greet only your brothers, those you know, they're part of the family, you know, what more are you doing than others? And the answer is nothing. Don't even the Gentiles, those who are unsaved, do the same. Do the same. In the first century... The Jewish world, Gentiles were really viewed as those who are prepared for hell. That's how they looked. The Jewish people looked at Gentiles going, they're they're going to hell. And the Jews hated their oppressors, the Roman. They were Gentiles. So everybody, Gentile and Roman, they're all condemned. And they never greeted a Gentile. And yet the Gentiles greeted each other. And sometimes loved each other and cared for each other. So what's Christ's point? Christ's love through you does more than others can do. Christian agape love surpasses the love of the lost by loving the unlovely. Not just their brothers, the unlovely. It actually goes even a step further by it loves those who hate you. It even goes further, Christ's love goes even deeper than that by loving those who want to torture you. And it even goes further than that because Christ loved through you by serving selfless and sacrificial, even loving those who want to kill you, persecute you. That's how far Christ's love goes. Are you you tracking? That's what he's talking about. That's what's radical. That's what's eye-opening. That's what's going to shock people into going, wait a minute, you're different. I mean, you are really different in a good way. Because Christ's love rises above the love of the unsaved. A love that is massively exceptional. Now, what Christ does here is brilliant. Because not only is he trying to clarify what the oral tradition, how it misled you, and he's trying to bring you back to true saving faith and get to your heart, but he's actually trying to expose your heart. And he's trying to show that your heart needs to be redeemed, not just your behavior. Because the Pharisees were great at you know putting on a show, looking really good for everybody, but their hearts were still massively wicked. Are you tracking with me? They needed to be transformed internally, and so he's been doing this the entire sermon. Verses 21 to 48 is all about exposing that their desperate need for Christ, and the only way they're going to love the way God wants them to love is for them to be born again, transformed, and that God would do it through them, and that's why he leads us to point number four, the perfect love lifestyle that's impossible. The perfect love and lifestyle that's impossible. Verse 48 is actually the sum of of the entire Sermon on the Mount. This is driving the point home, the great purpose of your salvation. Are you ready? You know this. is for you to become like God. You to be like Christ. 
That's the great purpose of your salvation, to know him and to be like him. And that's what he says in verse 48. Look what he says. Therefore, you are to be what? Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you can read commentaries, and they'll interpret this differently, and it's really a shame because the Greek perfect there is a fact. It's perfect. The verb is continual. It's forever, ongoing, continual perfection. And the verb perfect here means uh, to be completed, to uh, intend to the end of things. The perfect is translated in the New Testament sometimes as mature. But the meaning here, and you can interpret it yourself, has to be perfection. Absolute perfection. You say, why? Because it's compared to your heavenly Father, and He's the standard. So the sons of the Father, verse 45, are to be perfect just as their heavenly Father is what? Perfect. And because our Father is sinless... He is without fault, he is without blemish, he is without incompleteness, then that perfection is absolute perfection, and he's telling you, Christian, you have to be what? Perfect. Are you getting it? Own it. You will not go to heaven if you are imperfect. And the problem is, every one of you is. I don't care how nice you are, Grandma. I don't care how loving you are to your family, how sweet you are to everybody in the neighborhood, it don't matter. Because you have lied once, you've had a bad thought once, you stand condemned before a holy God because you are not, what? Perfect. Therefore, Christ's solution is very clear. You need to believe that Jesus is God who took on human flesh, The God-man lived a perfect life, never sinned ever once, offered himself to take the punishment for your sin upon himself. So he was punished by God the Father, all of God's wrath for your sin that should have been poured out for you on all eternity was poured out on Jesus Christ. He died, the wages of sin is death, he suffered death. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now when you put your faith in Him, when you say, I believe what you did accomplished my salvation, and I'm entrusting my life, not just a mental thing, but I'm now entrusting my life to you, then He can, when your sin is judged there, cover you with His perfect righteousness. It is a white robe of righteousness which allows you to walk in His presence now and to be in His presence for all eternity. The only way you can be in heaven perfect is to have the perfect white robe of Christ's righteousness, not because of what you did, but because of what He did. Are you with me? That's the gospel. And you know why it's good news? God did it! Some of you are going, i got to work harder. i got to be religious. No! you got to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen? amen? That's it. It's only what he did. This sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is to expose your spiritual bankruptcy, your spiritual inadequacy, your lostness, your trouble, your desperation, and that Christ did it for you. So you cry out to him, Cry out to Christ to give you a new heart so you can respond to him in faith and repentance. He'll make you new. He'll empower you. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new white robe of righteousness. And though you'll still struggle with sin, you'll be ready to follow him with everything. He'll secure you forever for heaven. And right now, he'll even, even enable you to love your enemy. 
And you can't do that on your own. Christ needs to live in you, and Christ needs to live through you. Amen? So let's take this home. Letter A. The work of your opponent is to make us enemies with each other. The devil loves to divide the body of Christ. When you have been part of a church and it's fallen apart internally, it's because the enemy has been at work destroying the oneness and the unity with each other through offenses, slights, hurts, differences. The enemy divides Christians and the Christ church by deception, criticism, and slander. He hurts us when we don't forgive each other and reconcile with one another, which is demanded by God. Don't even bother worshiping me until you make things right. So make sure you don't fall in to his trap. Make things right with your brothers and sisters. Letter B, loving your enemies is the ultimate effective witness. Listen, can lost people be nice to each other? Yes or no? Sure, they can care for each other. They give gifts to each other. But they cannot love their enemies the way that Christians can love their enemies. Because they don't have Christ through them. And it's a fact which points to Christ. When you love your enemies, watch what Christ does. People are going to notice and pursue loving those who make your life difficult. It doesn't mean you don't change jobs or get marital counseling. I'm not talking about that. But it does mean because of God's Word and God's Spirit, you can sacrifice, you can love, you can care, you can serve those who hate you, are unkind to you, indifferent to you, and oppose you, which will only powerfully point to Christ. That's what it does. It's not about you. It's about pointing to Christ. And that's a witness that is just really hard for people to get over. It's incredible. Letter C. Biblical love is not provoked, nor does it focus on wrongs done to you. 1 Corinthians 13.5, when he's talking about these great qualities of love, it says love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I'm going to look at both of those phrases because it has to do with enemies and struggle. Love is not provoked. You know what that term means? Love provoking is actually an imagery that they would understand perfectly. And those of you who have had horses or ridden horses would understand this. I never used spurs. I rode a lot of horses, a lot of horses. But when you have spurs and you, you know, knee into a horse, it takes off, right? But if you overspur a horse, what does it do? It gets provoked. All right? So had any of you ever experienced that in your life? where you're internally going, <laughs> anybody? Sure you have. You've come home, your wife says, get off that floor, I just cleaned it. <laughs> you know, your kids are going, daddy, tell Johnny to stop touching me. <laughs> your neighbor comes over and says, get your dog off my lawn, you don't even have a dog. <laughs> okay? Provoked. When you have Christ and the Spirit of God and the Word of God, you can actually love people who are provoking you. And then he says, not only that, not only do you not bite back, but biblical love does not take an account a wrong suffered. And you know what that word take an account means? Are you ready? Write it down. It means bookkeeping. Bookkeeping. When you love the way God commands you to love, you don't keep lists of wrongdoing. Some of you couples, usually there's usually one who love to keep lists. Don't. Don't. Forgiveness includes forgetfulness when you love. It does. 
And keeping lists will destroy a marriage. It'll eat up your Christianity. And real love forgives and forgets. Tear up the list. Love doesn't return hurt. It doesn't. It forgives. It doesn't keep an account. And letter D, biblical love keeps the trust of relationships, the sweetness of community, and is the fuel for marital oneness. Again, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 13, 13? The greatest of these is what? What's the quality? Love. It's even greater than not only spiritual gifts, which is the context of 1 Corinthians 13, but also even faith and hope. In fact, why? Because faith without love is cold and hope without love is grim. Biblical love is the main ingredient of any true friendship in this room. Love is the most important quality of this church family. Listen, you can be the most doctrinally sound, even obedient church in the world, but without love, you are an obnoxious noise. Obnoxious. Now it's going to be flawed, and we forgive one another, but we should never lose that heart Ever. I'm so thankful that you don't. And love is the only thing that will restore a marriage. It'll restore it. And while Miley is taking herself dancing and holding her own hand in self-love, only Christians can love a spouse as much as themselves. And each believer can love one another even when there's difficulties. And even those who oppose them and slander them from the heart. But that will only happen when you're truly in Christ and His Spirit is indwelling you and actually filling you to live through you. You know what's interesting is Elizabeth Prentice, after two of her children had died, she penned these words. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word to change our lives. Father, that we might be a responsive people that would worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, that we would then seek to truly love those who are a great challenge to us. And Lord, that we would love them in a way that would demonstrate your spirit, your power, and your ability to love and to sacrifice and to be selfless with people who are actually unkind and mean to us. And Father, we'll give you all the thanks and all the praise for what you'll do. Again, our desire is to worship you by responding in faith, in dependence. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.